In our first episode, we noted that Cymbeline, one of Shakespeare's final plays, echoes many motifs from throughout Shakespeare's work. In this episode, we examine those connections to discover what makes Cymbeline such a uniquely visionary play. Dr Will Tosh, research fellow and lecturer at Shakespeare's Globe in London, explores the play's historical allusions to reveal how this late play is also actually an origin story. In it, we can find starting points for some of the most significant shaping forces of Shakespeare's imaginative world, and even of our own. I really feel that Cymbeline shines with a sort of relationality to to other plays. We've got flashes of plays like Midsummer Night's Dream and As You Like It, um, courtly characters disappearing off into the greenwoods and undergoing some sort of ethical or kind of moral transformation. In the story centering around Imogen and Posthumus and Iacomo and Clotten, you have echoes of some of the really very dark work that Shakespeare started with in his career in Titus Andronicus. Um, and although Cymbeline doesn't get nearly as tragic and violent, the the risks are still very much there. Shakespeare's thoughts are, are, are still kind of circling around those ideas of sexual violence and assault. Iacomo steals into Imogen's bedchamber and examines her naked body. Clotten, enraged that Imogen has chosen Posthumus over him, plans to rape her. Posthumus orders Imogen's death when he, like Clotten, becomes enraged by the belief that Imogen has chosen another man over him. This story of male jealousy is one Shakespeare returned to throughout his career. It's a sort of essential male sin, isn't it? That sort of fragile jealousy and rage that comes about from being thought sexually supplanted. And it's something that Shakespeare explores with consummate skill in a series of, of ways. And I always think about it in relation to the other two really compelling studies of marital jealousy, Othello and The Winter's Tale, those three plays see Shakespeare experimenting with how much cause, inverted commas, he needs to provide in order to get to the dramatically compelling moment of murderous jealousy. In Othello, he is seduced from his belief in Desdemona. But that takes... An act and a half. You know, that takes some time. Let me get to Cymbeline, where it takes a scene. Once he's got Posthumus in that kind of confused, embittered, sad, angry, exiled state, he's sort of defenceless. And it just takes a bit of a bit of ratcheting from Yakimo. And if we move on to the Winter's Tale, the most amazing thing is that he just needs a moment. There's a sort of compression through the plays and through Shakespeare's career where I think he works out what is dramatically essential. Posthumus shares characteristics with tragic figures like Othello and Leontes in The Winter's Tale and even with jealous lovers from the comedies Much Ado About Nothing and The Merry Wives of Windsor. But there's one thing that sets Posthumus apart from these other men – They regret their jealous rage only after realising that their suspicions were false. Posthumus, in contrast, repents while he still thinks that his partner was unfaithful. At the start of Act 5, Posthumus appears with the bloody cloth that is Pisanio's 
evidence of having killed Imogen and says, You married ones, if each of you should take this course, how many must murder wives much better than themselves for rying but a little? Gods, if you should have taken vengeance on my faults, so had you saved the noble Imogen to repent and struck me, wretch, more worth your vengeance. Posthumus still believes that Imogen betrayed him, but he also says that she was much better than himself, that he is more worthy of punishment than she was. He has forgiven her and blames himself, so much so that he decides to die for Imogen's country in war as penitence for his wrong to her. So I'll fight, so I'll die for thee, O Imogen. Of course, Posthumus doesn't die, although at one point he is about to be hanged by the British executioner. And Imogen doesn't die either, although Posthumus thinks she did. This dimension of the play, the constant but averted threat of death, makes it a distinctive genre of story. The playwright John Fletcher, who Shakespeare works with on Two Noble Kinsmen, on Henry VIII, is experimenting with the sort of the sort of new, fashionable kind of mode of tragic comedy. And in fact, in one of his plays, The Faithful Shepherdess, he defines tragic comedy. And he says in this preface to the reader, a tragic comedy is not so called in respect of mirth and killing. So it's not just that it contains funny stuff and sad stuff, but in respect, it wants deaths. It lacks deaths, which is enough to make it no tragedy, yet brings some near it, which is enough to make it no comedy. The first folio of 1623, which classified all Shakespeare's plays as comedies, tragedies or histories, called Cymbeline a tragedy. But this idea of tragicomedy better captures the play's dynamics. The play brings many characters near death, though only Clotten and the Queen actually die. But its final scene is largely a comic resolution, featuring marriages, reunions and restorations. The genre of tragicomedy is significant in relation to Posthumus's unique change of heart. Many early modern dramatists portrayed jealous husbands, but critic Robert S. Miola points out that Posthumus experiences a moral transformation without parallel on the early modern stage. No comparable figure extends the kind of forgiveness that he does. To understand why this might be, we'll look more closely at the kind of world that tragicomedies depict. But first, we need to examine the third genre listed in the folio alongside tragedy and comedy, history. There's also a good deal of overlap with plays such as King Lear and Macbeth, which also draw on, a, a, if not a prehistory, then at least a kind of old history of England and of Scotland and of, and, and of Wales and of, and, of the, and of the idea of a united kingdom, even if that term postdates Shakespeare's plays. So there's all sorts of stuff going on there in terms of, of what being English means. And we've even got kind of tendrils of connection to Shakespeare's other chronicle history plays, plays like Richard III. In his history play, Richard III, Shakespeare dramatised the end of Richard's reign and the ascension of Henry VII. After a period in France, Henry returns to England to defeat Richard and become the first Tudor king. Cymbeline subtly but unmistakably alludes to that important historical moment through the most named location in the play, 
Milford Haven in Wales. Milford Haven crops up a lot in this play and it's it's talked about quite a lot as a destination for Imogen and it's the site of, of this sort of rural retreat set up by Belarius and the king's two long-lost sons. So we have quite a clear sort of insistent sense of location. Milford Haven, it's a natural port on, on the south coast of Wales, very well known to early modern English men and women as the, the, the landing point of Henry VII, who is the, the, the kind of founder of the Tudor dynasty, Queen Elizabeth's great-grandfather, and King James's slightly more distant, but still very direct ancestor. So for him, that's also his origin point. And King James I's eldest son, Henry Stuart, is being invested as Prince of Wales, as in Crown Prince, direct heir to the throne, in 1610. In Cymbeline, written close to 1610, the Crown Princes Avaragus and Guiderius emerge out of Milford Haven as quasi-mythical figures. Their innate nobility shines through their rustic upbringing. "'Tis wonder that an invisible instinct should frame them to royalty unlearned, honour untaught," says Belarius of the Princes. "'The benediction of these covering heavens fall on their heads like dew, for they are worthy to inlay heaven with stars.'" By aligning these virtuous princes of the ancient past with the contemporary British monarchy, who also had Milford Haven as an origin point, the play offers its own hopeful benediction or blessing for the country in a semi-mythical, semi-historical origin story for Britain. But the play's vision also goes beyond Britain's dynasties to explore deeper questions of national identity. Britain goes to war with Rome over the issue of tribute, the Queen and Clotten reject the idea that Britain should pay tribute to Rome. Clotten affirms that Britain's a world by itself, and the Queen recalls an ancient British king who, she says, nearly mastered Caesar's sword, made London with rejoicing fires bright, and Britain's strut with courage. A production of the play might choose to emphasise that these patriotic sentiments come from the wicked Queen and Clotten, or it might validate a sense of national pride in the play by emphasising the natural virtue and bravery of the two British princes. But, either way, after Britain has defeated Rome in war, Cymbeline still decides that Britain will pay the tribute after all. The reason for this may have to do with Rome's identity as another vital origin point for 17th century English culture. For Shakespeare, and I think for his audience, ancient Rome is the most fundamental point of reference for government, for politics, for philosophy, for literature, really, for, for sort of everything other than religion. There's still that kind of unbelievably central position of Rome in, in early modern imaginations. And it's really because every educated English person was taught a syllabus at school that was 100% Latin and drew its authority from the texts of 1,000, 1,600 years before. Rome is the sine qua non of the state. The Romans end up 
bested by the English, largely Belarius and Guiderius and Alvaragius and, and Posthumus, kind of who magically kind of beat them all back. But nonetheless, they're still that kind of model of, of how to run a country. Cymbeline told Lucius that till the injurious Romans did extort this tribute from us, we were free. But Rome needn't be seen only as an oppressive force that takes away Britain's freedom. Rome could also be seen as a source of cultural lifeblood, one that Britain as a world by itself might be the poorer without. Cymbeline himself learned from Caesar in his youth, and the final reconciliation between Britain and Rome may celebrate Britain's cosmopolitan culture as well as its native virtue. But there's a further significance to the play's focus on the time of Cymbeline and Augustus Caesar, which connects to a third origin story. This isn't the origin of a national identity, but of a religious belief system that would go on to transform the world. Shakespeare's using the same sort of source material that he, he uses for his chronicle history plays. He's using Hollinshed's chronicle of England, Scotland and Ireland. M myth and story and folklore get kind of bundled up into chronicle history. And Cymbeline is one of those figures. There's a historical British king uh, called Cunobeline who is said to reign in England at the time more or less of the birth of Christ. And so this is the kind of I mean, I think unbelievably important, although sort of undiscussed issue that's hovering over and behind and around the play Cymbeline is that it's taking place at a time that is the most central and important moment in history for any early modern Christian. And I think that helps us unpick some of the kind of issues around transformation and prophecy and rebirth and forgiveness that are woven through Cymbeline. There's quite profound commentaries on when this play is set and providing a sense that the play is doing something a bit more, to use a really kind of loaded phrase, sort of Christological, kind of sort of theologically ambitious with its setting and with its themes. So Cymbeline is a sort of name that means something to, to literate English audiences as the English king who was reigning at the time of the birth of Christ. And that, of course, is also the significance of Augustus Caesar, who is the Roman emperor of the Bible. So when the Bible talks about Caesar, that's who this is. And names that now we might just kind of gloss over and go, oh, yes, yeah, Caesar, Roman, whatever. For an early modern audience, they're names with much more weight. And I think... They're names that also lend credence and provide an explanation for some of those elements in the play which have subsequently been um, held up as sort of implausible. So the, the tribute that Cymbeline must pay to Rome, which is it, the cause of the war, is in the final lines of the play completely forgotten and Cymbeline says, oh, well, look, we've won, but we're still going to pay the tribute. And, and I think a modern sort of adherent of naturalism and realism stamps their feet and goes, well, that's ridiculous. That doesn't make any sense. But actually, if you think about who Cymbeline is, who Augustus Caesar is, paying tribute and paying taxes to Rome has a whole other kind of Christian significance when you think about the directives that went out from Rome in the time of the Bible. Caesar Augustus says, all the world should be taxed. 
Christianity was the dominant religion of Renaissance Europe and remains a major world faith in the 21st century. In the Christian faith, Jesus Christ is the Son of God, born as a human being who died to save humanity from their sins and was then resurrected to eternal life. The Gospel of Luke in the New Testament recounts one origin story for Christ, which many people know as the Christmas story. It reads as follows. And it came to pass in those days that there came a decree from Augustus Caesar that all the world should be taxed. Therefore went all to be taxed, every man to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of a city called Nazareth into Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, to be taxed with Mary that was given to him to wife, which was with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her first begotten son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a cratch, because there was no room for them in the inn. It is Caesar's decree of taxation that brings Joseph and his family to Bethlehem, where Christ's birth fulfils a prophecy from the Gospel of Matthew. Out of Bethlehem shall come the governor that shall feed my people Israel. Taxation from Augustus Caesar is actually a kind of loaded idea here. So when Cymbeline has this transformation, it says, actually, yeah, I'll give, I'll give my taxation to the Roman emperor. That's what's going on. It's not just him saying, oh, it's the end of the play, so we might as well pay up. There is a sort of significance to that. So there's this sort of really elusively dense undergrowth in terms of the setting of this play. It's ancient Britain, it's kind of in the past, it's like King Lear, but it's also kind of really specific. It's more or less AD zero, and it's Shakespeare's response to the question of like, I wonder what was going on in England at the time of the birth of Christ? Cymbeline elusively but recognisably presents the origins of Christ and the radical new spiritual order that his birth, death and resurrection represented for Christians. Christ taught that sin need not lead to damnation if a person could repent, and his resurrection showed that death could give way to life, two redemptive elements that are reflected in the narrative of Cymbeline. The genre of tragicomedy opens the play onto a spiritual world. The play's particular historical moment invites the audience to connect that spiritual world more specifically with the birth of Christ and the forgiveness he represents. Perhaps it is this new presence of divine grace in the world that allows Posthumus to forgive his wife, repent of his sins and find forgiveness himself. The, the tragicomic mode is really interested in the classical gods and prophecies and the kind of action of the fates and of providence, which, it, particularly for Cymbeline, draws on not only that classical idea of the fates, but on something that's more religious and Christian religious, this idea of providence and destiny. And it's there, I think, in Cymbeline in quite a, quite a distant and quite an elusive way. The, the way the play kind of dallies with its, its Christian significance is 
incredibly subtle in Act 5, which is the, the, the jail dream vision, where Posthumus is visited by the ghosts of his father and mother and two brothers, who continue that process of renovating him from this wretched, jealous, murderous person to someone who actually is now, again, worthy of of Imogen. And these ghosts call upon the ultimate authority, Jupiter, Jove, the classical king god, but also stand in for God, God, the Christian God. It's not a Christian world. But it's a world that Christians will go, this is unbelievably significant because it's the time of Christ's birth. So as that kind of classical overlay of destiny and gods and prophecies meets the sense of destiny and providence and the protection given to Posthumus by the, if you like, the sort of heavenly father, can't help but make an audience slightly sort of prickle and kind of think that what we're seeing here is something that's a a sort of spiritual kind of nod to a more strictly Christian idea of, of, of providence. Jupiter tells the ghosts, Whom best I love I cross to make my gift the more delayed delighted. Be content, your low laid son our godhead will uplift. For Christians, The idea that crosses or trials can lead to greater joy would be familiar. In the Old Testament, humanity is doomed to suffer death when Adam and Eve commit the first sin and are expelled from paradise. This event, known as the Fall, was sometimes called the Happy Fall by Christian theologians since it led to Christ's incarnation and salvation. When Lucius finds Imogen weeping on the body she believes is posthumous, he says, Be cheerful, wipe thine eyes, some fools are means the happier to arise. This line describes the story of Cymbeline, as well as the Christian story. All the main characters suffer their own falls. Posthumus is banished, then betrays his faithful wife. Imogen suffers Posthumus's betrayal, and then what she believes is his death. Cymbeline loses his two sons, then his daughter, then almost loses his kingdom in war. But without the war, Cymbeline's sons might never have rejoined their family. The war also brings Iachimo, Posthumus and Imogen together so that the truth can be revealed and the couple reunited. War brings about a greater peace than Cymbeline could have imagined. In the last scene, the Roman soothsayer interprets a vision he had before the battle. The Roman eagle lessened herself and in the beams of the sun so vanished, which foreshadowed our princely eagle, the imperial Caesar, should again unite his favour with the radiant Cymbeline, which shines here in the west. Cymbeline replies, Lord we the gods, never was a war did cease if bloody hands were washed with such a peace. For Shakespeare's Christian audience, for whom Christ's incarnation was the central event of history, the play's religious resonance would likely have seemed its most significant aspect. The play's final word, peace, might have suggested Christ's title as the Prince of Peace. For audiences today, this word peace might also be highly important, but for a different reason. 
In the same speech, Cymbeline proclaims, Let a Roman and a British banner wave friendly together. The war's outcome won't be the dominance of one nation over the other. Instead, the different groups will coexist in mutual respect and cooperation. Their political ties to each other won't oppress them, they will sustain them. For 21st century audiences, living with the history of multiple world wars and ongoing efforts to sustain successful international organisations, this might be the play's most significant aspect. Its vision of a global world, the possibility of diverse communities living in peaceful, productive connection. Productions of Cymbeline today might highlight this vision as one more origin story told in the play, not one located in the distant past, but a prophecy or a hope for the future. Cymbeline, for theatre-goers and readers today, in the 21st century, the early 2020s, hits home in a way that perhaps we'd never have experienced expected even five or six years ago. For me, as a Brit speaking from London, it rings with Brexit and perhaps anti-Brexit sentiment. It's a play about Britain, England's place in relation to continental Europe. It's a play about making peace with one's neighbours. It's a play that calls out the dangers of petty-minded nationalism. And it's a play that really kind of explores the idea of nationhood and people, but not as a, as a community closed off from others, but a group of communities and societies living together in peace and accord. And I think for now, for our particular time, that makes Cymbeline really a play for today. In our next episode, we'll look closely at speeches from Yakimo, Imogen and Posthumus, three characters who trace the spiritual arc of fall and rise, division and reconciliation that is so central to the play's message. 